Hey, you're listening to Featuring Filmmakers, a podcast where we talk to people in the filmmaking industry about their projects and the creative process behind making them. My name is JJ. And I'm Amanda. And this is Featuring Filmmakers. To give you more context around this conversation, we highly recommend watching the project discussed on the blog at featuringfilmmakers.com. Today we're talking to Jamie McPherson, who is arguably one of the best natural history cinematographers out there. We're talking to him about a series that he's most well known for, and that is Our Planet. We talked to Jamie about the world-known iceberg calving scene that he shot from a helicopter, as well as the heartbreaking walrus scene that he also shot and was a part of, and the BTS around that being stuck in a tiny little very stinky smelly hut and the circumstances around that so without further ado let's get into it before we get started i just wanted to say thank you for doing what you do i'm a i'm a fan I'm, i've been a huge fan of our planet for a long time even before our planet like natural history shows i have such fond memories of watching them like sunday afternoon with my dad just watching and being just amazed by animals i think that's really what made me like fall in love with animals from an early day. I've especially birds, especially birds. He can get down with some birds. <laughs> I love a good bird. Love your work and Thank just you. super thankful that you've chosen to do this and that we have shows like this that the world can watch and enjoy. So thank you. No pleasure. I just I just want to first start out as we sort of like dive into um the podcast. I'm just curious about your journey as a cinematographer. Um, it must be, you know, quite intentional, but can you tell us a little bit about how you became a natural history cinematographer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, like you were saying, I, I grew up watching wildlife documentaries. I was obsessed with animals as well. And then I didn't really know how those two things would work together. Um, but I basically, uh, when I was about 15, I did some assisting work, like a summer job with a cinematographer and a sound guy who were filming doing um, documentaries on archaeology it was a summer job my dad sort of got me to a friend of a friend and then I was just sort of hooked on there were the two adults that I've met apart my parents are sort of my dad's an artist my mum's a psychologist and they were the first adults I've met that just absolutely loved what they did and that stuck with me um but they just were having such a great time filming stuff and telling stories visually and then so basically I I when I could I started to apply for assisting jobs um, outside of school and university and I basically worked my way up from assistant to first camera over many years so my my route through I didn't study any cinematography or film uh, I studied zoology but my way in was being an assistant and working my way up. So was it always natural history or were you working on other projects in the early days? No it was all natural history so I kind of I I was working, I mean, I was obsessed with animals, so I was filming animals at home in my garden with anything I could get my hands on. And then I went to university in Bristol, and it's where the natural history unit's based. So I got work experience with them, and then it kind of went from there. I met a few people, you know, unpaid work and just sleeping on mates' couches and worked my way up. Yeah, as I said, I was just assisting people. And it got very lucky that I assisted some amazing cinematographers uh, who taught me a heck of a lot. Um, and sort of, I built from that really. So I just, I just got any job I could to work my way up from assisting to sort of second camera, and then eventually first camera, and then just avoiding getting a real job really. That's amazing. The true definition of the filmmaking grind: work your way up. Yeah, and I say to, I mean, there weren't really any courses when I did it. There were, I guess, there were a few courses, but you could do sort of proper film, filmmaking courses. 
but I kind of wanted to go into documentary filmmaking and at the time there weren't any courses or anything. So I think it did me, I mean, it did me a great favor assisting people and working with people, you know, getting on location and being with these guys who were at the top of that game. So I think that's, that's helped me out no end. Well, we're talking about our planet today. Um, so I'd love to hear the story of how you first got onboarded onto our planet as a whole. And at the time, did you fully understand what our planet was or what it was going to be? <laughs> um, well, I was lucky enough to work with, I've worked with Alison Fothergan and Keith Scully quite a few times through my career. I worked on the first planet Earth um, and I worked on Frozen Planet and I worked on a series called when Alison and Keith Scully, Alison Fothergan and Keith Scully um, set up Silverback Films. And I worked on one of the first big projects they made, which was called The Hunt for BBC. Um, and I was one of the principal photographers on that. And so I had that relationship with Alison and Keith and then they, they told me about our planet and yeah, I just knew it was going to be amazing. The scope was huge. It was the first big Netflix um, documentary series. Oh, cool. Um, and it was, yeah, no, it was really exciting working with those guys and the team they had were guys I'd worked with before in Bristol. So it was a really, you know, everyone's at the top of their game. And the thing that was really exciting was the scope of it, but also it was in conjunction with WWF. So it was, it was going to be, conservation and natural history so not just sort of pretending everything's okay and sort of trying to tell the real story of, of these places around the world so yeah it was really exciting and I knew being on Netflix it was going to have a reach way beyond anything I'd done before. Was that the first uh, sign of of the scope the fact that Netflix was attached to this? Yeah I think so because I mean you know as you know they've they've got more viewers than anyone else. Mm. Um, and so being able to, you know, you release something for the BBC and it's super prestigious and it's amazing. But I love BBC. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, I grew up watching it and I, I've worked on it for 25 years with, you know, with different people on the BBC. But the, it, with Netflix, it just felt like it was going to go around the world immediately. Stuff on the yeah. BBC gets seen by everyone around the world. Eventually it works its way to different territories where the net, Netflix was like, boom, into however many territories it's into in terms of pre-production i would assume there's a lot of um it's based off of a lot of you know animal movements and animal just activity and then locations so can you tell us a little bit about like your um role in pre-production and what that looks like as a cinematographer yeah, was it, so uh, I I tend to work closely with producers and directors. Obviously, there's a huge team of researchers, production coordinators, production managers. There's a lot of people to 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 pull off a series like Our Planet. is a massive team effort of of pre-production of people in the planning stages and editors and guys in the DIT and uh, it's a huge number of people, composers. Um, but in terms of uh, how it looks to start with, is the producers will be working with their their production team, coming up with stories, working out locations and timings of when we do it when we're going to go where and when, and then I'll, t I'll be talking to them. Once they know the sequences and the stories, then I'll, I'll talk to them and we'll discuss the story and what we can do that's new or fresh or what approach we can take to the style of the cinematography. And I've been to a lot of these places before as, as I've a lot of the producers. So we'll work, we'll be like, well, do we need to go there for that? And I've seen this before, or I've shot this before. And this time we could tell the story from this perspective and make it feel fresh. So, you know, it might be a wild dog hunting wildebeest for our planet, I've been lucky enough to film that a few times before, but for our planet, instead of making it from the wild dog's perspective, we want to tell it from the wildebeest's perspective. So you've got a mother with a calf and, you know, it's much more engaging if it's you're with her and there's this pack of wild dogs coming in to hunt them. So with that in mind, we have to work out where we're going to go and when for the wildebeest migration and then what kit we're going to take 
and how that will work. And that process is repeated across all the sequences that I was involved in. So it's kind of back and forth the whole time. And then once we've shot it in the edit, they'll send me cuts. We're looking at it and they might be like, do you remember, you know, what do you think of this cut? And I'll be like, well, I remember there was a really cool shot of this you could use there. Um, so it's a collaboration from start to finish. So how long was this sort of pre-production? Do you remember? Longer for everyone else because I was lucky enough to be working on other projects at the same time. So I can just sure. flounce in, say something and then go off and film a different thing. Cool. Um, but I guess I couldn't say for sure. It's it's a couple of years. It's at least a year in pre-production. And then during the shooting schedule, there's still pre-production on the next thing. So it's kind of like a big you know, a big moving thing all the way through to the edit, which takes at least a year, year and a half of editing for a series that big. What kind of, what are the kind of questions that a producer or director would come to you with during pre-production? Um, I guess it's, it'll be talking about a location, it'll be talking about, say it's a, say it's a, it might be the subject, it might be, say, say it's filming Tigers. They might say, well, we, I, they know I've filmed Tigers before, so we're going to go, we're thinking about going here to tell this story. And then it'll be my take on how we would tell that story in a fresh way, what kit we'd use, and then considerations of who's on the team and when we go, really. So Got it. it's more okay, sort yeah. of the practical side of it. And then the stories of like, what do we do? But obviously with natural history, you've kind of got a, you've got an idea in your head when you go, but then when you go there, you have to adapt to that, to tell the story that unfolds rather. You can't just say, I'm filming this happening because it might not happen. So it's kind right. of, you have to be pretty adaptable. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is just how much can you actually build that story? Because... I mean, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get, but is it is it more than you might expect? Or I guess it's it's having it in your head. I mean, for me, it's you 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 can go there with a style you're going to shoot it in. So, say we you film the tiger sequence we shot, you want to film it slow pace. So it's a tracking vehicle, but it's crane moves and it's slow and it's supposed you know you want it to be super tense because the tigers are in the grass, the prey can't see them. So you're trying to build this world, take take the viewers into that world. So you're shooting it with you know, the style in mind, I suppose, and the shots you want to get that help complement that style. But the actual, what what actually happens, what plays out with the tiger catches the cheetah or whatever happens, you don't know. So you're you're just ready to cover that. But it's more you go with the idea of this is the style we can shoot it in. Sometimes that comes wow. when you're on location, like, shit, okay, we can do this this way. This works. This is really cool. Let's go that. Let's take the sequence in that direction because it kind of, it feels right and we're getting those shots that work really well. Yeah, this is so exciting. I'm yeah, like, it's good fun. <laughs> yeah, like you'd have to be on your toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great fun. Yeah, beats working. Yeah. Oh, amazing. You mentioned that um, in pre-production, there's like a massive crew of researchers or people that have gone out. Are these researchers, the, these people, are they a part of the crew or is this like information that you're getting from zoo, zoologists? I don't, I don't know the right term for it, but people that are yeah, actually yeah. out there in the field researching is it just getting information from pre-existing people or are they being sent out on behalf of our planet? So it's, it, there'll be, there's, there's researchers, assistant producers, producers in the sort of basic team with the production coordinator, production manager. So there's people in part of the team, permanent people in Bristol, part of Silverback Films. Um, so those researchers uh, are talking to people in the field, field guides, field assistants, different crews, and then they've got the wealth of knowledge of Silverback of all the different producers. So they can say, oh, have you been to the Masai Mara in September before? And, and you'll know people to talk to. And then we rely a lot on, you know, you've got filming drivers that drive for film 
have got huge amounts of knowledge of the places they work in. So we'll be talking to them saying, we're thinking of coming here to film this species at this time of year. What do you think? Are there any other stories that are cool? So it's kind of a network of lots of different people, of zoologists, biologists in the field, but then researchers back in Bristol and sort of a collaborative effort of knowledge of, of where to go when. Also, from what I understand about our planet, there's like so many cinematographers, so, so such a large crew, but there's a lot of cinematographers involved also. But I'm curious if you are working alongside these other cinematographers, if you have any contact with them, or if you're all just sort of like out on an assignment around the world and then and then it all just comes together in the editing room. Uh, it, it totally depends on the show. Um, so for, the, I mean, the program I was probably most involved in was the Frozen Worlds episode. Um, so that was actually a really small crew. I shot most of the, the most of that episode, but I was working with, obviously you're working with helicopter pilots and boat drivers and all these other people who, they're a key part of filming things like this these days. You know, you you have if you're doing a tracking vehicle shot, you rely on the driver and people on the crane, and it's a team effort. But we'll, I'll always work with that. Might be me and an underwater cinematographer, or with Roger Horrocks and Alex Voyer. So I'll be if we say you're doing a boat shoot with Orca, then I'll be doing topside, and I'll, there'll be a drone pilot. So I'll we'll I'll be working with the drone pilot on dual controls, and then the underwater crew will be going underwater to shoot the same action I'm shooting from the top. So you kind of work together in that sense, and then there'll be maybe you'll go to an you know you go to South Georgia, you'll put somebody on filming this this story over here, and I'm shooting them the, this story here, and then there's underwater guys. So you you come together occasionally, not normally when it's topside and underwater, then you work together or drone, but otherwise people are kind of off all doing their own yeah. things. Yeah, all over the place. Is there a sense of like camaraderie with that? Like you're all out typically in some remote place and I'm sure in a confined space working closely together, like, is it all fun and happy all the time? Or yeah, is it, yeah. I mean, pretty much because yeah. we all know each other. I mean, I don't know, you know everyone. Bristol's a really small place and I've come through from being an assistant and there's other people at various stages of their journey. So I'm lucky enough to, I've recently been working with one of the first people I've assisted, Martin Colbeck. So I was working with him again on a project. So you're kind of like, you're all mates and you've all worked together. So you kind of all have to, you're trying to create the best product you can together really. So yeah, it's generally pretty Good fun. When you're on location, it's the best, right? I mean, so I can't imagine, you know, going to all these locations together. You must, you really must build a community and a friendship. And just also when you're seeing some of the things that you're seeing, there's nothing better than sharing in that. Like, I can't imagine some some of the whales you must have seen together and being like did you see that like that's incredible right yeah yeah no it's it's really exciting and some of that you know we filmed i filmed a glacier carving event for frozen worlds which was probably hands down the most incredible thing i've ever seen and yeah i Is still chat when to the it helicopter like rotates pilot. yeah 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 so yeah. we did shots where oh, we were in the helicopter above it and it falls away and all that stuff we're in with the little tiny helicopter is is me in the helicopter um and yeah, those guys. Every time we meet each other, you still we still. I, I worked with Jean Michel, the helicopter pilot, again recently, and we're still like when you first meet, like oh my god, and everyone asks you about that, and it's yeah, it's so exciting. So we've experienced that together, and have yeah. those memories of us camping on the side of the hill and waiting for the glacier to fall apart. I remember that. A quick moment on that. Did you guys have any idea that that was going to happen? Yeah, we well, I mean, we hoped it would. My partner Sophie was the director, so she was shooting on the ground with a long lens alongside uh, um, Matteo. Um, 
so we kind of knew it could happen, but it's still a really long shot. So we we were delayed in that that instance. We were delayed by two weeks. So our helicopter wasn't on location. So we were we were stuck um, miles and miles away, just at the airport, waiting, literally living like Tom Hanks in Terminal, but not quite as glamorously <laughs> in in Greenland. Uh, we were just sat in the airport, hanging out for like seven or eight, nine days, and then we eventually transferred down. Uh, and Sophie and Matteo were waiting by the glacier. Twenty, it's twenty-five daylight, so you're they're camped there, and you're just sat there. You hear a noise and you jump out of your tent and nothing happens. And that one, in the most cliched way ever, was literally the very last, the, the event that was on film was the only thing that happened in a month of being there for them. We were there for two weeks. And that was the last night and the last little bit. Of, like, we were literally playing cards. We were sat wow. by the helicopter playing cards and we were looking at it again. That's weird. That bit of ice is at a different angle. Is that a different angle? Fuck! And then everyone jumps up and we got in the helicopter and Sophie and Matteo ran down the hill you know, down this really steep sort of scree slope to get to their cameras. And then as we got in the air, the whole thing kicked off and the whole world fell apart. So it's pretty wow. exciting. Can you imagine if you were just really into your cards and you just missed that <laughs> moment? <laughs> yeah. How does one even predict that that that's going to happen? So we work, we work with a glaciologist. We work with a glaci- yeah, you work with glaciologists and scientists who, it's basically that time of year is the hottest. If you have a nice hot day, it's moving. It's the fastest, but it's a store glacier in Greenland, so it's moving quickly. So you get bits falling off. So all the little bits, the build-up was in the days preceding that when a little bit falls off and you know it nearly hits helicopter and we nearly die, all that sort of exciting stuff. But that main big carving event was just lucky. You know, it's just it's just a, a gamble. So that's the sort of so there's you know, the glaciologists the out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I think there's a podcast about different ologists, isn't there? I feel like there's a show about <laughs> all the different ologists out there. That's one sure, I didn't know about, and it makes sense. I mean, totally. But um, you've mentioned this a few times, but just to re-edify it, uh, I assumed that with natural history cinematography on our planet even, that many of these locations, the subjects you're shooting, because they're so remote, difficult to get to, that oftentimes the cinematographer ends up being um, more than just like a cam op, essentially. Uh, but you've mentioned having assistance a few times here. I'm curious, is it like a regular set where you have a first AC, you have first AD, no. are these people there, or are you just doing it all yourself? No, we're doing it all ourselves. So I was lucky. I came up at a time when uh, you kind of could be an assistant, and you were, I was a, I was a professional camera assistant. Well, not, I wasn't very professional, but I was being paid as a camera assistant for these guys for like a year or two, and that's kind of gone away now. Where you tend to, you're more likely these days on production to have uh, someone from production help you. So a researcher, an assistant producer, the producer will just get stuck in and help you. There's not a professional assistant anymore. There's not that role really in, yeah. in natural history. So if we're doing a vehicle shoot. I'll rig the vehicle. I do the grip work. I do every, you do rig it all yourself. You work it all out. You build it. So you kind of you have to do all those roles, and then the producer, director, AP, researcher, between you, you get it all done. But no, there's no okay. there's no assistance. There's no ACs. There's no you do everything. No focus pullers. Wow, that makes sense because I'm sure you have to move quickly and yeah, you know, you yeah, from location to location. Yeah, and also the the cameras we use. You know, if you're using a long lens, there's no you don't need a focus puller. You've got to do it by eye. And if you're using a Gyro stabilized system on a, on a car, there's not really, no one really help you. You've got to just got to right. get on with it, really. First off, the shots are stunning, right? They're incredible. But I'm curious about, like, what are some of the sacrifices you have to make to get these shots? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've always done it. I've done it since, like I said, I did it since I left school. And so 
you kind of, I guess, yeah, it, it's an amazing life and it's an amazing thing, but you do give up. You know, I've missed most of my mates' weddings, most of my mates' birthdays, things like that. You kind of, because you're away at least six months of the year. I'm lucky that I work with my partner, Sophie. So when we're away, it's kind of what we work together. She's the director, I'm a cinematographer. So we oh, kind of, we're huge. a team together, which is so cool for the whole, for the hunt and our planet, life on our planet. We've, we've worked together on three massive projects so far. Um, so that makes it a lot easier. But yeah, I guess you for that lifestyle, it is a lifestyle and, and that amount of time away, you sacrifice a lot of sort of personal life things. But what about some of the physical sacrifices that you had to make? Uh, what does that look like on site when you're on on project um i mean you kind of you're not in it's not very glamorous i'd say like filming the warrest you've probably seen there's a behind the scenes that me and my partner sophie and ollie scoli and hector skin apostles and a few guys we all we a team of us went to film walruses um in russia and that's probably one of the least glamorous things i've done you're basically living in a hut that's designed for three or four people and there's like six of you in there uh and you can't wash and you can't you know you've got there's just there's no you basically go to the toilet in a bucket. And so you're sort of physically in a pretty gross space for weeks and weeks on end. Yeah. Um, so there's that sort of physical, I guess, and you're, or you're on a boat. Like I've been to Antarctica, lucky enough to go to Antarctica a few times. You go on a tiny boat and you're basically stuck in a boat uh, with these, luckily the crews are all generally, you know, very cool people. So, but yeah, you kind of haven't got a lot of personal space or personal freedom to do much. Mm. Yeah, no kidding. If I want to get on your level with traveling, I might have to make some sacrifices. Which loyalty program are you on? You must have hell of <laughs> sky miles. I have a hell of a lot, but yeah, I, really, I don't really spend them. So some, oh. yeah, my kids are going to inherit some sweet air miles. There you go. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my gift to you. Yeah. Can you tell us about the most unique experience from being on set? I mean, one of the most, as I said, I talked about the, gla the glacier carving was insane yeah. to, i think to witness and to be a part of you know the the bits of ice that came the glacier was 100 meters tall i used to i thought the glaciers fell into the sea but actually underneath the bit you see above the water is is like a fifth of it so there's four five hundred six hundred meters of ice below so when a glacier carves it actually lifts up and then an actual mountain of ice so 500 meter tall mountain comes out of the sea and then it rolls over, or some of them just crumbled and disappeared. So I'd say in terms it's like of watching natural a mountain spectacles, birth. yeah. And then, but in a helicopter, while you know the pilot John Michelle is looking at his mirror, going shit, and there's a like it's coming out of the sea behind you, and you have to move out of the way. And it was that was pretty exciting. Oh. As well, there was a lot of swearing because it was like very excited. We haven't died. Type of excitement. <laughs> uh, I'd say in no terms tears. Of, <laughs> no, just just a lot of swearing. Just swearing. Very excited. Swearing. Yeah, I get very excited near death. Um, yeah, fair and enough. I'd say, yeah, I'd say going to Russia to film the walruses, uh, walruses uh, was incredible and sad and moving. And mm. it, it, but the story is basically that there's no sea ice left in Russia on the Chukotka coast. Um, Wait, you were a part so of the, that? Yeah. So I filmed the oh, walruses that fall off the cliff, which is a horrendous thing to see. Yeah. And uh, but to you know the whole thing of going across Russia staying in these you know going to a gold mine in Russia which seems to be populated by sort of 80s powerlifters in Russian terms these big guys um, and then you get a helicopter piloted by three drunk Russians to go to this little hut with these scientists who've been in there for six weeks um, not washing and then you then you, there's no walrus on the you're the little hut on the beach and one morning well in the middle of the night you, there's behind the scenes of it we literally you wake up and you can hear this noise 
and it's 100,000 walrus. It's that entire world population of those walrus is on this beach around your hut. And, you know, we had to like barricade our hut up and the smell and the noise. That's the noise of the noise they use for Wookiees was was walrus. So they sound really? like 100,000 oh, really? Wookiees. It's like hanging outside your hut. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Wow. Um, and just to, to see that and to be a part of that and then to see the sadness of them crowding up these cliffs and falling off the cliffs because they don't understand gravity or cliffs or anything. They just literally think, I've got to go back in the sea. And they're used to being on a piece of sea ice a metre high so they can fall into the sea. It doesn't occur oh. to them that if they're 100 metres of a cliff, it might not end well. So That's devastating. that was probably the most incredible experience most heartbreaking experience of my life, I think. Mm. And to, but important, important, you know, we were watching it thinking, you know, you don't want to film it, but you do want to film it because you want to show people the reality of, you know, that's probably the starkest visual, you know, to show what global warming is actually doing. That for me was one of the starkest images that we could bring back. I watched the making of that episode. I, you must have been in it then. So you were in that yeah. little hut. Yeah. So that was you. Yeah. yeah. That was that's, me. Yeah. This, that, that idiot. this is yeah. awesome. I mean, it's awesome for me to be connecting this yeah, full yeah. circle. The guy talked about throwing um, the bucket. That was me. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Oh my gosh! But yeah, that episode <laughs> was just horrible. So hard to watch on yeah. a TV, let alone I can't imagine in person. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No. That is an experience that. And I'm that sure was all down to Sophie. You. you know, that was Sophie's story. She wanted to tell. Um, wow. An amazing research and dedication to you know it took her three years to get that to get us there to location to be there and we had no guarantee we didn't think they were going to go up the cliffs the cliff story was a when we were there we were like holy shit this is actually happening we'd never seen that that hadn't been filmed before we'd seen them falling off little sort of slopes and they tumble a bit and then they get in the sea but we went there for the spectacle of the beach and then the cliff stuff was a really sort of unhappy bonus to you know that it all played out in front of us yeah wow so that obviously is a memory that's gonna um stick with you forever i guess from a cinematography perspective uh, more of a visual perspective is there a shot that um, made it into the our planet series that you were like that's the shot i'm most proud of because of either because of the subject or just visually because it's such a beautiful shot i'd say one of my favorite shots from the series is uh i was in svalbard filming polar bears and we just built this new rig, uh, which was with a side-by-side. -side. So like, you know what side-by-side -side is, like an ATV, where you sit two mm -hmm. up in the front. And we'd rigged it with a GSS. So we were basically doing these tracking shots across the snow. So no one ever done it before. So super smooth. You can be alongside the polar bears when they're walking. And I got a shot Whoa. of a, a female with a cub in what we call diamond dust, which is super fine snow. And it happened to be that the, the, the it was perfectly backlit. And there was a strip of light in the distance. She was like 500 meters away. And it's just a really wide shot. And it's a mother and baby polar bear just walking along, tiny in frame. That's one of my favorite shots of the series, I think. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah, really. I mean, just I all came and literally, yeah, we had that, it, that. Those conditions lasted for like two minutes. So we happened to be there and we saw the polar bear. Shit, okay, let's go, go, go. And we go alongside it. And, you know, it's, it's beautiful, all yeah, yeah. pretty cool. That, and then that shoot ended with us. The vehicle going through the sea ice and that's all just escaping with our lives. So. Oh, they all, okay. they all got very excited after Ooh. that, yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> okay, so we're, oh at, we're at two count for near-death experiences. Yeah. That's yeah, too I many. I can't die. I can't die. That's my take-home message. 
that's so too too many. Yeah, exactly. There's the advice. There's the yeah. advice for the, the day. But th- yeah. those are like moments that you just can't plan. And it's just such a gift as they like come and you have to, again, you have to be aware and on your toes and like paying attention to your surroundings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's that. kind of, that's, I mean, I guess natural cinematography is, is you, you fix it in prep and you, you've got the right kit, you're in the right place with the right team. And then you've got to be on it that when something like that happens, a lot of those, a lot of the key events you see happen once in a month, six weeks, and they happen, you know, they happen and they're gone and that's it. So I've been lucky enough to film some amazing events like polar bears catching seals from the sea ice, which never been filmed before and all kinds of things like that. And, and, it's just paying it. It's for, my advice to people coming through is if you're in wildlife cinematography is it's being really paying attention and never, never quit. Never think, oh, it's the last day. Sod it. We'll go home early. It's like you don't, you've got to run the clock down and be there and be attent- be super attentive and super on it so that if something does happen, you can capture it. And that's the key for, I think, for that sort of wildlife cinematography. Um, switching gears sort of into sort of the post-production of our planet. Um I guess like being the cinematographer and having all these amazing shots that you feel really proud of, is it sort of difficult handing off the shots to the editor and just saying, do your thing? Like, do you worry like, oh man, what if that shot doesn't make it? Or what is that experience like? Yeah. And I'm a more confident. I think when I started out, you kind of think, oh, why didn't they use that shot? And it's a thing that a lot of people, a lot of cinematographers say, so they never use my best shot. And I'd say that it's obviously not the best shot for the story that they, that the producer, director, and the editor need to tell. So I've, I've spent a lot of time in edits and been lucky enough to make a lot of my own films. And so that process, if, if you understand it and you understand what's needed, then it makes it a lot easier to make sure that your shots are used and you shoot it in a certain way that allows them to use those shots. Um, but I, again, I try and work closely in the post-production side with the team, so with the editor and the producer, and see as many of the cuts as possible and then you can sort of say, oh, there is this shot you could use that I was thinking goes with that shot and it helps tell the story in that way. So, yeah, it's kind of a process and, and it's a, it's still a collaboration at that point. And the cinematographer should be involved in that and be able to sort of influence it. When does Mr. David enter the scene? Because, you know, Mr. <laughs> David Attenborough, come on. Yeah, uh, he, he depends what it is. I mean, if he's a presenter-led series, he's on location at different points throughout the whole project, you know, planet oh, Earth. Wow. He, you know, he would be oh, there yeah. doing pieces, the camera introducing it. Um, for our planet, it was just, it, not just, but he narrated the series. So it's a, once the series has been shot and edited and put together, the, you know, the producer director will, will sit with him in a, in a studio and he'll watch it and he'll say the script and work with them, maybe tweak the script here and there. But yeah, so he comes in at the end for our planet. He came in at the end to narrate it bring it all to life i'm assuming you've met him at some point yeah yeah i've been lucky enough yeah i've met him a few times I've worked on a few he's series. a legend he's a yeah, living he's legend cool. yeah so obviously you got to see bits and pieces of it uh while it was being built but when was the first time you actually sat down and uh got to see the series in its entirety i was lucky enough so i, I went to the the final mix so you have the audio the final audio mix where the pictures are all done it's been graded it's looking as cool as it's ever going to look so uh, often I'll see the final mix, which is in like a, in a little mini cinema. They'll show it to everyone and they'll be just, just tweaking the mix. So I'll get lucky enough to see it in this amazing, on this amazing screen. Uh, and then like everyone else, as soon as it came out on Netflix, I sat down with my kids and 
you know, anyone else who's around who I can drag into the room to sit and watch it and see it on my own telly because that's where I've watched everything else. So it's kind of nice to see it in your lounge. Often we'll have a TX party and you'll go there and you'll watch it in a pub or something, but then it's nice to come home and watch it how you've watched everything else. So. How was that experience watching it for the first time? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Very, pretty, yeah, really chuffed, really, really proud of what we did and and the, the images we got. And yeah, no, it's really exciting when you see it. I still get excited seeing yeah. stuff. And, yeah, Come on, yeah, you can tell. me too. I I I get excited too. I'm like, let's go. This is so exciting. Um, thinking back to the experience, is there anything that you would maybe do differently this time around? Take deodorant for the guys in the hut in Russia, maybe. Um, Take deodorant. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. Old Spice, uh, help us out. Yeah. What are some hopes that you have for the future? Like, would you like to do more of this type of thing of of, of our planet, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is a, it's a huge series. And yeah, I had a great time working on it. There's, an, there's a second series of Our Planet, which is out now on Netflix. Um, as I said, we're current, I'm currently the series that I've been working on, Life on Our Planet. Everything's called Our Planet these days. Uh, life on Our Planet, which is the history of, it's the story of life on Earth from start to current to present day. That's been super exciting as a kind of, as a as taking a different take on natural history and blending natural history with CGI VFX That's creatures. Cool. So currently I'm obsessed, as I've always been obsessed with dinosaurs, as most people are as kids. I've been lucky enough recently to have filmed some of the big A-lister dinosaurs for this series. So I'm currently yeah. obsessed with filming creatures that aren't even there. I would love to have you back on the show sometime to talk about life on our planet. Obviously it's releasing soon, right? Yeah. October 25th is out on Netflix. So Come on. we're sort of building up the press and talking about it. And there's, there's teasers and trailers out there. So it's not, it has been top secret for four yeah. and a half years. I've been working on it. So, this time we, we got to get Sophie on too. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Up, get a grown up on. She can actually answer the questions. Yeah, there about we what, go. <laughs> what really happened? Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that. that. It's it must be a whole different experience shooting with CGI in mind. Yeah, it's great fun. How many people it. can say they filmed a T Rex? We'll get into that. This is a teaser for <laughs> yeah. season three. We'll come, on. We'll come yeah. back to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This has been an awesome conversation. Just to talk to you and and to meet some of the people behind a series that I have held so high for such a long period of time it's amazing excited to see more from you and, and excited for you just to to be involved in all this i guess uh a note that i'd love to trail out on uh you kind of hinted at some ideas already but for anybody looking to get into natural history uh, cinematography filmmaking would you have any advice or early stage um yeah early stage advice for people looking to get into natural history yeah i'd say i mean i get a lot of people write to me and i try and respond to everybody and chat to them on the phone or email or whatever because that's you know i think it's really important to support people coming through and um, that's how i got started i got started that somebody answered my email and answered my phone call and like hassling them and the excuse of like writing to them every week going, oh i just did this please give me a job um yeah so my advice would be watch the credits on the things you love see who made them and just try and reach out and get in contact with them and you know it's not hassling them you've got to you just and you know i still do it now if i see someone on tv that is in natural history i'll write to them even if i'm not trying to get a job i'm just saying i saw your thing it was cool i love this that so just it, there is a community of people and people love to hear from anyone from any any level of starting out or people who experience so i'd say 
watch the credits, see which production company made it, what what cinematographers were involved, what what directors were involved, editors, and then depending on which part you want to slot into, or you might not know. So I'd get in touch with all of them and just try and meet up, have a coffee, a uh, cup of tea, and sort of talk to them about it and just get a feel for what it's like in that world. And then if opportunities come up, they might remember you. You know, that's how I as I said that's how I started. I, my CV was on someone's desk and they sort of said, we need a guy, picked it up and then they, I got a phone call and got a job that way initially. Um, so yeah, I'd say just reach out to people and say hello and see what they can offer. I found even through doing this podcast that people are far more accessible uh, than you might imagine. Simply just read the credits, folks. Reach out to some people. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just people. And yeah, that's- exactly. That's one of the points of us doing featuring filmmakers is we want people to be able to learn and hear from people that they um, admire. You know, Jay, he's excited about you being on the podcast. Me too. <laughs> you know, so to yeah, have... Yeah, it's really, it's really have, cool that you guys do this. Yeah. yeah, to have people that are willing to come and talk to us, we value and appreciate it a ton. Jamie, we're really, really grateful. So no, it's been yeah. a pleasure. thank you for being, no, for being cool. here. Last question. It's sort of tradition on the podcast, but uh, we always ask people who or what project would you like to hear about on the podcast? Oh, I don't know if you've heard of Life on Our Planet. You should get as a girl. As a, yes. Uh, as a director called Sophie Lampert. I'd like to hear yeah, what she's got to say. I, I would love that. I would love yeah. that. Yeah, she's, pretty, awesome. she's pretty mean and pretty bossy, but you know. Yeah, well, you know. Girl. You could reach out to her. She'll probably just like, put the phone down. But it's worth we would. <laughs> we would love that. Seriously. <laughs> Lucky yeah, she's not in the next room. She's not in the next room at the moment, so she's okay. Bummer. I wish she was. Yeah, I want her to work. pop in. <laughs> yeah, well normally she would. She's in the edit at the moment, so she's well, doing tell her I said hello. Life on our planet. Yeah. Okay, to get in touch. Well we'll come back on with uh, Life on Our Planet. We would love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we'd yeah. love that. Thank you, Bye. Jamie. Pleasure. Featuring filmmakers is made possible by Harvest Film Company. To dive into content about these projects that we discuss, you can go to our blog on featuringfilmmakers.com where we have everything laid out with behind the scenes, the original project discussed, and additional episodes there. So check us out at featuringfilmmakers.com. Thanks so much for listening. Love you. Bye.